Okay, so Acts chapter number six is where we're going to be at. And last week we looked at the first seven verses, and uh, we're seeing a pattern throughout the book of Acts as we're following the, the birth and the growth of the early church. And what you see is that the church is growing and in a healthy place, and then there are uh, speed bumps and hiccups and things along the way that there's problems that arise. Uh, Satan brings adversaries and oppression against all these different things going on to try to basically stop the church before it gets started. And so what happened last week was that uh, as the church was growing and as it was very diverse, there was many different groups that were represented uh, within the church, although it was still at that time Jewish in nature, but amongst them, there were many different uh, groups that were there. And uh, uh, amongst those, you had the the Greek uh, Jews and the Hebrew Jews, the ones that had kind of followed the uh, the Hellenist way of thinking and adopted the the Greek culture and things, and those who had stayed strict to the Hebrew culture. And so they would be Greek speaking and Hebrew speaking. They would have been a, a great difference between them. But there was a problem that arose because uh, the Hebrew, or excuse me, the Greek speaking uh, Jews, the Hellenist Jews thought that they were being left out, thought that they were being mistreated because many people were giving to the church and the church was distributing to those who were in need, to the widows, to the uh, fatherless, to the poor, to the different ones. And the Greek widows were being overlooked in that distribution. And it resulted in them murmuring. And so they were amongst one another complaining and uh, giving out because of this uh, whether it was intentional or accidental oversight. And it came to the apostles' ears, and as soon as they heard about it, they began to uh, uh, seek to resolve this conflict because this was a, a threat to the church. It was a danger to the church. It could cause division. It could cause a split to occur. It could cause bitterness. It could give the adversary a foothold to get in and scatter the flock, Okay. And so whenever they recognized this going on, this jealousy, this bitterness and things that was creeping in, they said, we have to take care of this. We need to do it quickly. And they came up with a plan, with an idea. They told the congregation, choose out from amongst you seven men who are full of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom and appoint them to be over these matters because the apostles couldn't uh, leave their, their job of uh, teaching and preaching the Word of God to oversee the administrative roles of the church, right? For the 12 apostles to be able to have the oversight over this that it required, it was going to cause other things to be left undone. And so they said, for the congregation, seek you out seven men. And we see the Holy Spirit working in this because out of such a huge congregation, there was a uh, consensus that was reached surrounding these seven men. And they choose, they put for these seven men, they pleased all the people, it pleased the apostles, they set their hands on them, they blessed them, put them in that office and said, okay, this is now your job, this is your task, this is going to be your responsibility, you're going to oversee this. And as a result of this, the gospel went forth, many people got saved, and it tells us at verse number seven, that even a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so whenever they overcome these difficulties, whenever they uh, overcome these things that could potentially divide 
or destroy the church, that the result of dealing with it was health, was growth, right? Mm -hmm. And so we learned a few different things here. One thing that we brought out last week was prioritize what only you can do. The apostles were there saying, uh, yeah, we can do this. We can take care of this. We can oversee this. But plenty of people could oversee that. There's many different people who could do that. But our main job, our main focus is to preach and to proclaim the word of God. Okay. And so they stuck with what only they could do. And we, our challenge for that was look in our lives. There are certain roles that only you can fill. Only you can be the husband. Only you can be the wife. Only you can be the parent. All these different things. Morning. So there are certain roles that only you can fill. And so you need to prioritize those things. We also saw that everyone in the church has something that they can do. And so there is a diversity of talents, giftings, and abilities. And there is no place for a monopoly within the church. There's many different people who can do many different things. Uh, we also seen that the church was meant to be governed as a body with all involved and working together with one another. And so we saw that last week. We also saw the, the importance of resolving, uh, resolving issues quickly. And I will tell you, the longer that you let issues and problems uh, lay dormant in your heart and your mind and fester, the longer you keep that, the more you ruminate it, the the more that you murmur about it and different things, the worse it's going to be. It's going to bring bitterness. It's going to bring hardship and heartache. It's going to cause problems in your spiritual walk. It's going to cause problems in your relationships with people around you. So it's best to deal with problems quickly. And uh, then we also saw that uh, it is very important for the whenever the church is looking for someone to put in, a, in an office in a place that they are men of God that are full of the Holy Spirit and are full of wisdom. Uh, it seems like it's a, a common practice today that whenever, whenever we're looking for someone to fulfill a role, we look for the one that is uh, most popular, or we look for the one who has all of the worldly qualifications, but we don't pay as much attention to the spiritual qualifications of someone, and the spiritual qualifications are paramount. Uh, I've seen many churches that for putting someone in office, they would say, okay, who has the most money? Who knows the most people? Who is the most outspoken or most uh, well-known amongst the congregation? Who, uh, you know, all these different things. But whenever we're looking at the church of God, we need to make sure that the people who are, uh, who are in positions to oversee things and to see that things get done, that they have uh, wisdom, that they have the understanding of the Word of God, that they have the Holy Spirit within them. Okay, It's not a popularity contest. Instead, we need uh, godly men, not just popular men. Right? Mm -hmm. And so today what we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at one of these seven men that were chosen, and we're going to see some of the evidence of uh, his qualification here. We're going to see some of the evidence that uh, he was a godly individual full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we're going to be looking at Stephen. And even though his job was caring for the widows and uh, more of an administrative role of overseeing the, the funds and the distribution of funds for the church, uh, that's not what he was known for, right? Whenever we think of Stephen, what is he known for? Yeah, he was the first martyr, right? 
And so it's not his accounting abilities. It's not his uh, distributing to the widows and taking care of these things that he was known for. It was the fact that he was a, a faithful servant of God, faithful all the way to the end, right? And anyway, so we're going to look at this in Acts chapter number 6, uh, and we'll, we'll pick up at verse number 8. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and of power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, uh, and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council, and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So we'll stop there for right now. Really, all of chapter number seven is going to be uh, Stephen's defense. This is going to be Stephen standing before the council and speaking truth to them in whatever they are whenever they are hell-bent, if you will, on uh, destroying him, on tearing him apart, on throwing him out, Stephen stands before them and boldly proclaims the gospel, speaks truth to them. And that's what we're going to see in chapter number 7. But chapter number 7 is 60 verses long. Okay? And I doubt anyone wants to sit here and listen to me read chapter number 7, right? So if you'll permit me, I'll summarize as we go through. Is that good with everybody? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, what we see here in the end of chapter number six, uh, first and foremost in verse eight, it says that he was full of faith and power. Now it says that he did great wonders and signs and miracles amongst the people. And this is an interesting thing for us because the disciples and the church have just made a decision. They have just made it an appointment. We don't find that Jesus was there to lead them. He didn't tell them to do it. It wasn't that there was a voice came down from heaven, that there was thunders and lightnings and all these different things showing them God's will, but God was working his will through his Holy Spirit in his people to bring about something great. And so this is showing us that God endorses what they have just done, the decision that they have just made. They have chosen Stephen and the seven to take this office, and we believe that the two offices of the church is that of the pastor and of the deacon, right? And so this is God's endorsement on it, and this is one of the first times that we find anyone outside of the 12 apostles doing signs and wonders and working miracles. And it was this man, Stephen. And we see all the qualifications and who he was and what he was like, his manner of life, and that is on full display through this chapter. But God has put his stamp of approval on it, and he says, this man is sent by me. This man is, uh, uh, I approve of what's been done here, Okay. Simple enough. And as he's doing this, uh, it says that there arose certain of the synagogues and... Uh, um, okay, I'm just deciding what to do on this one. Uh, as far as the synagogues go, the synagogues was something that began during the time of the 400 years of silence, okay? Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
The Jews had been carried away into captivity. They had returned to the promised land. They were back in uh, back in Canaan, back in Israel. And many of them, after captivity and all, they needed to be taught the Word of God. And we can find in the very end of the Old Testament that there were priests and there were scribes that were going about and teaching and expounding upon the Scriptures, instructing the Jews in the Scriptures, Okay. And this was being done. They were sent out throughout all the villages and all the different towns and things, teaching and expounding on the scriptures. And basically what happened was almost uh, a picture of what we see today in uh, local churches, okay? That each village, each town would have a synagogue that was set up. The rule for it was if there was more than uh, 10 Jewish men in a town or a village or a city, they could establish a synagogue. And they would have someone who would... Uh, teach and expound upon the scriptures. They would meet together on the Sabbath day and they would study the word of God. That was the synagogue, okay? And so with this, there were synagogues spread all throughout. Uh, Some cities had more than one synagogue. And so it brings up this idea of synagogues in verse number nine. And it tells about the Libertines, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, them of Cilicia and Asia. And they were disputing with Stephen. So there was all these different groups, all these leaders of these different groups from different areas, different cultures and things that came with Stephen. They were disputing the word. And it gives you this list of these different places. And the Cyrenians would have been the area from which, uh, um, excuse me, the area from which Paul would have been from, Saul of Tarsus. Okay. And what we're going to find for those who are familiar with the story of Stephen is this is a turning place. And Saul of Tarsus comes on the scene throughout all of this. And so this introductory here with all these synagogue leaders that are disputing with uh, Stephen, whenever it talks about the the synagogue of the Cyrenians, this is the the synagogue that uh, Paul would have attended or Saul would have attended whenever he was in the Jerusalem area. And so whenever they are taking him out and they're laying their clothes at the feet of Saul, This is the group that he was associated with. So it lets us know that Saul was listening to what Stephen was saying. He was one of the ones disputing. And we know what an intelligent mind that Saul had or that Paul had. We know how familiar with the scriptures that he was, how zealous and how dedicated as he was to the scriptures. And it tells us here that none of these men were able to withstand the words of Stephen. And I think this is one of the things that really pricked Saul, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, that really pricked Saul and pushed him into his his madness, if you will, in persecution of Christians because uh, this engages a man's pride. You ever been on the losing side of an argument, losing side of a fight, whenever it was something that you were very passionate about? I assume all of us have been, right? And you go away, your feelings are hurt, you're upset about it, right? And what our pride leads us to do is it leads us to uh, hatred, it leads us to anger, it leads us to bitterness, it leads us to try to heal our wounded ego, doesn't it? And so I think this is part of what provoked Paul, because he couldn't, uh, with truth, overcome the things that Stephen was saying, and they ended up having to kill him throughout lies, but he was witness to all of what Stephen was saying. He was witness to the truth that he was preaching, and I believe that he was fighting and he was battling it in his mind and could not get past it because there is a seed that has been planted here. 
And as I said, I'm getting ahead of myself, but coming back to Stephen on this, <clears throat> it says that they weren't able to they weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake, and they began doing the same thing to Stephen as they had done to Jesus Christ. They began looking for false accusers. They began looking for anyone they could to try to frame Stephen. And these men that they brought in said that he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they brought him to the council, and the, the accusation that was brought against him was that he spoke blasphemous words against this holy place, that would have been the temple, and against the law. And they said, we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And so these are the charges that were laid against him. And so as Stephen is going to begin answering these charges, this is the focus, this is going to be the thrust of his message, okay? But the interesting thing here in verse number 15 is they were looking at Stephen with their anger, with their hatred, with their rage, thinking that he was some blasphemer, thinking that he was some wicked one, but it says that they all seen his face as if it had been the face of an angel. And it's interesting to me that it puts it this way, that it was as the face of an angel, because what's the face of an angel like? You want to have any idea? Mm -hmm. And this from the, the paintings and, and portrays of, of, of religions. Yeah. yeah, so there's different ways that men imagine it to be. We find in Scripture that their countenance often shine, glowed, right? And so what I kind of imagined was, remember how whenever Moses came down from the mount, how his face shone, he had to put a veil over his face because of his face shining? Mm -hmm. Because he had been in the presence of God, that he was uh, just glowing with basically the Spirit of God. He was just so full of God that it was beaming out of him. And this is where Stephen was, that God had just filled him because he's getting ready to do something. God is going to use Stephen mightily in his death, more mightily than he ever could have used him in his life. And God is filling him with his spirit. He is uh, allowing him in his presence. He has a closeness to God at this point of time because of what God is doing for him and through him. And a great lesson for us is that whatever uh, God's will brings us to, that God is going to be with us. He's going to uh, fill us, empower us, and enable us to be able to face whatever he leads us to do, right? All the way up to the point of death. And Stephen's not the only one that this happened to. If you start studying martyrs down throughout uh, church history, you look through the different persecutions under the Catholic Church and things like that, the people who were burned at, a st at the stake, the ones that were drowned, the ones that were uh, sawed asunder and flayed and drawn and quartered, all these different ways that people... Uh, were executed and murdered for their faith, many of them had an extra outpouring, an extra uh, uh, bit of grace, if you will, to be able to face what God's will had led them to. And I want to say that's not just martyrdom. God doesn't only do that whenever you're dying, but he can do that while you're living as well. But this shows us that God's grace is sufficient, right? And so they looked on him, they saw him, his face as if it had been glowing. That's what I'm thinking. It has been the face of an angel. Then said the high priest, are these things so? He finally gets a chance to answer for himself. And if you were to put yourself in Stephen's position, okay, not necessarily imputing Stephen's character upon you, but if you would, as you are now in your 
way of doing things and your character and your mindset, if you were to be in this position, what would your response be? Okay, you'd be questioning God's God's plan. You'd be questioning if maybe even if He's even there, right? Okay, one of our, one of the things that we first jump to, we try to defend ourselves, right? Anger, you'd lash out at them, say how horrible people they are and how wicked they are and how they're going against God and God's word, and just tear into them, right? Would you have any love or any mercy, any concern for their, for their souls, for their lives, for anything about them? No. no. And so we would be seeking to get out of that circumstance. We would be uh, maybe trying to, maybe we'd be a little bit more cowardly rather than lashing out in anger and telling them, giving them a piece of our mind. Maybe instead we'd be backpedaling. Maybe we'd be trying to bring up a compromise. Okay, just let me live and I'll, I'll, I'll be good. Right? What would our response be? Would we be able to stand? Would we uh, still have that faith and that strength, that purpose of heart and mind in that circumstance? Or would we abandon the faith? Because there's been countless ones now throughout history that have been brought to this place where they were commanded to recant, to deny your faith or pay with your life. And none of these things were concerned in Stephen's mind. None of these were his priority. None of these things was what he was seeking to do. Instead, what Stephen sets out to do is he preaches the truth. He goes through and reaches way back to Abraham because that's what the Jews anchored themselves in. They said, we be Abraham's children, right? And so he goes all the way back to Abraham in verse number two and how Abraham dwelt back in Mesopotamia, how he was in Ur of the Chaldees, how he dwelt in Haran, and how he was far away and estranged from God. And God reached down, not because of anything that Abraham was or any quality that Abraham had, but he reached down and he called Abraham out of that place and he led him to a country and promised him that land, right? Long before there was a temple, long before there was a law, and so he begins to expound to them their history. And I'll tell you, in the many times that I've read through the book of Acts, many times that I've read through this chapter, I'm just like, okay, Stephen's just long-winded giving them a history lesson. These are all things that they knew, right? He is talking to the council. These would have been the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. This would have been their religious leaders. These would have been the ones who lived and breathed the scriptures. And so they knew the history. And so what was the purpose? What was he bringing out in the things that he was saying? And I said, pay attention to the charges that was against him. The charges was that he was preaching heresy, Right? That this Jesus that you're preaching is going to change all these things is not God. And you are making this man out as if he is God whenever he is not. We have rejected him, right? So he's preaching heresy. He was attacking the temple. You're saying that this Jesus is going to destroy the temple. And we find out through what he says here that they basically put the temple at a place of an idol, right? But you're attacking the temple and you're attacking the law. And these are the three points which he goes at as he begins talking to them and preaching through the scriptures 
telling them where they came from and showing how God weaved their history together and how God was bringing them to this point, that God didn't just uh, put them down with the law and with the temple and that was meant to, to go on forever, but God was bringing about something, that God was always on the move, that God was always doing something, and he never had intended for them to stay in that place. The law had a purpose for a time. The temple had a purpose for a time, but it was just a stop on God's timeline. It wasn't the be-all and end-all. It wasn't what God had intended for them to get stuck on, okay? And he's going to bring that out clearly through all of this. And so I'd like for us to read through this, but I'm not going to because, like I said, it's way too much, okay? So I'll hit on the high points. But as he takes them back to Abraham, he shows that people have been worshiping God long before the temple and long before the law. And he also traced this unfolding, as I said, this unfolding of God's plan and his truth. And he was pointing to these people that God had always been headed towards something, that all of these had a purpose. And so <clears throat> Stephen, with knowledge and wisdom, showed the leaders of Israel that there was a history for the people of Israel and for their leaders of mistreating their saviors. That's something interesting that he brings out. There's a history of them mistreating their saviors, and he gives them two specific examples as he's coming down through this uh, very lengthy passage. And the first one that he brings out is Joseph. And when we come down to verse number eight, it says that Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. And in verse nine, and the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt but God was with him. And now, as they were going through this, was this was all familiar. They would have been listening intently, saying, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And then coming down to this, it says, the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph. We've talked about how he is a perfect type of Christ, right? Sold Joseph, intending to destroy him, intending to get rid of him, but they couldn't do so because, guess what? God was with him. And God delivered him out of their afflictions, gave him favor. And then we come down to verse 11. There came a dearth over Canaan. Joseph was down in Egypt, and the patriarchs that sold him was in Canaan. They were going through a famine. They were going through judgment. They were going through hardship. And then it was made known to them that there was corn down in Egypt. In verse number 13, and at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down to Egypt and died, and our fathers and were carried over into Sychem and laid. Okay. So anyway, what, what we're seeing in this, he is telling the leaders of Israel that in the past, their forefathers, the leaders of Israel, had persecuted the one that God had meant for to be a savior over them. Right? They hated their brother. They hated Joseph. They sold him into slavery. They said he's out of out of here, he's no longer a problem for us. We've gotten rid of him. And then he came back, right? He wasn't completely out of the picture. 
And the importance of this is for the people of Israel, for their leaders to know that God sends a deliverer, God sends a savior. The people are so ignorant and so dumb, they don't recognize him. They reject him and they refuse him. God brings about judgment on them. And eventually they have to face the fact that the one they once rejected is their only hope, right? And so now he brings them to where they're all coming back and they're groveling at Joseph's feet. And Joseph then sustains their life and gives them a place that the one who they didn't love has been away with the king and making preparation, and only he can save them. And this is still playing out. The Jews didn't understand it then. We look at it in light of Scripture. This is still playing out because the Jews are going to come face to face with the one that they rejected, and the next time they're going to see him as a king and as a savior and one that they must fear and worship and bow down to, and that'll be at the end of the tribulation. God is going to send a famine. He's going to send seven years to bring them back to himself. And then they're going to be willing to accept him, right? Mm -hmm. And so he is laying this out before them. And just imagine, Stephen is preaching this with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't have the New Testament, right? He doesn't have the New Testament, and so he says, you have a pattern of rejecting God's deliverers. And so he says, okay, they were in Egypt for 400 years. And by the way, they weren't even in the promised land. There was no temple. There were no sacrifices. There was no law. And there was still a God. There were still people worshiping him. And God was still working in spite of the temple and in spite of the law that you hold so high regard. Wasn't even a thought yet. Right? And so after this 400 years... There was Moses, and we're brought into Moses here in verse number 20. It says, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit the visit his brother and the children of Israel and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. So the first time that Moses rose up to deliver them, they rejected him. They refused him. Verse number seven or not seven verse number 27, but he did that to, excuse me, but he that did his neighbor wrong, thrust him away saying, who made thee a ruler and judge over us? And so he, he brings into light here that Moses was wanting to stand up. He was wanting to be a leader. He was wanting to rule over. He was wanting to be a deliverer for the people of Israel. But Israel in their wickedness said, who made thee a judge, and a ruler over us. We don't want you here. And so for a time, Moses disappeared. For 40 years, he was in the backside of the desert. For 40 years, he was away, and things continued to grow worse for the nation of Israel while they were in Egypt. And after that 40 years, after a time where their Savior was removed, their Savior returned 
to bring about salvation. They didn't recognize him the first time, the second time they followed him. And it talks about how uh, he did signs and wonders. He proved himself to be sent of God. He had the power and authority of God, and still they were rejecting him. But he returned after those 40 years. And so we keep coming on through this. And we have the calling of Moses in uh, 30 through 34. In verse number 35, it says, This Moses whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer. So are you catching the theme as he's going through this? You rejected him, but God sent him. For a time he went away, but eventually they had to come to grips with what they had previously done to the deliverer that God had sent. And so verse 36, he brought them out after that he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt in the, and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. And so we've seen Joseph, we've seen Moses, two deliverers that God had sent. They didn't recognize, they rejected, and both times the deliverer returned. So this should have struck fear into the hearts of the ones that were hearing here, because what he is saying, Jesus has promised he's coming back. If you look at the Old Testament through the scriptures, you find that there is a recurring theme that for a time there's going to be the lamb that is slain, but he's going to return as the Lion of Judah. And this is the theme that Stephen is getting across to these people. You rejected the lamb, get ready for the lion. Right? And so their argument against him, their, their accusation against him was that he was preaching blasphemy, that he was telling heresy, and he's pointing out to them, I'm just telling the truth about what God has been doing and the pattern that I've seen over and over and over again, that this same Jesus whom you have slew, God has appointed to be the Savior, and he's coming again. The other accusation was that he had spoken against the law, against their scriptures. And so starting in verse number 37 that I just read, down through verse 43, he begins telling about how the Jews have treated the scriptures. He said, you have spoken against our law. You have spoken against Moses. And in verse number 37, he says uh, that Moses had testified that God was going to raise up another man, another savior like unto Moses, another prophet, it says here, and him shall you hear. So there was a promise that there would be another one coming, and they treated him the same way as they treated Moses. It says, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. That's the law. That's the Old Testament. To whom our fathers would not obey, but they, they thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again to Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. 
Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Molech, and the star of your god Rephem, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Jordan. And so what he is telling them here is God gave you his oracles. He gave you his laws. He revealed to you his word and you would not obey it. You rejected it. You sinned against it. You made to yourselves false gods and idols. Whenever Moses spent too long in the in the mountain, you ended up making a god of gold. As soon as you received the law, you broke it and you said, I am a threat to your law. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So remember, I said he's answering the accusations that's been brought against him by throwing it back on them, showing their guilt, showing their need for a Savior, and he is seeking to bring them to Jesus. So I asked earlier, if you were brought into this situation, what would your desire be? How would you handle it? Anger, uh, fear, either resentment or whatever may happen here. But what Stephen ends up doing, he takes the opportunity, educates these people on the word of God and on the will of God and preaches the gospel to them. And so he says, you reject the Savior, you reject the scriptures. And then the third thing that he was accused of was uh, the threats against the tabernacle, or not against the tabernacle, against the temple, against the sanctuary, right? And so whenever we pick up in uh, verse number 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of wit witness in the wilderness as he had appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our father or our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob but Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelt not in temples made with hands, as said the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do you." And so we come down to the third accusation, the third charge against him. He says, you're preaching blasphemy. No, I'm preaching the same message that has been preached by the prophets down throughout the times. I'm telling you about the deliverer that you have rejected, just like all the deliverers that's come before. He said, you have tried to uh, discredit the law and you've rejected the law and you're trying to destroy the law. And they said, well, you have been sinning against it, disobeying it and ignoring it for centuries. And they said, well, what about the tabernacle? What about the temple? And he says, the temple is not God. He says, the people have been worshiping God long before the temple. There was a tabernacle in the wilderness. It was a tent. After that, Solomon built a temple. But guess what? They were not in Solomon's temple. They were in Herod's temple. And so they said, oh, you're threatening the temple. And he's like, well, which one? There's been three different ones. There's been a tabernacle. There's been two temples. They've been destroyed before, so why is it so bad that I said that God is going to destroy this temple, which he did, right? 
And so he says, God cannot be contained within the temple. For me to say that the temple is going to be destroyed has no bearing on God whatsoever because God cannot be contained in the temple. He transcends the temple. But they had taken their laws and their system of religion. Notice I said their laws, not God's. They'd taken their laws, they had taken their temple, and they had idolized them just like that golden calf in the wilderness. They said, we don't want God, we don't want Jesus, we want this thing that we have created. We want something that we can lay our hands on and our eyes on, and this has become sacred to us. We're not so concerned about the God of the temple, we're concerned about the God we've made of the temple. And so essentially, he tells them here that it has always been about worshiping the true and living God. It's been about his plan. It's been about how God has been unfolding salvation to them, how they continually resist it, how they get stuck on their idols and on their way of doing things, and how they resist the movement of God's plan forward. And this is one more time that they have rejected and they have resisted the movement of God's plan of salvation forward because they have been stuck on these things that God is going to destroy. And so he tells them here in verse 51, and I'm sure they were happy to hear this, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. He says, look back over Israel's history. The pattern is repeated and you've done the same thing. Just like they did, you're doing the same thing. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just, excuse me, the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers, who have received by received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. So what if I say the law is going to be done away with? You don't keep it anyway. So what if I'm preaching to you Jesus the Deliverer, you have murdered all the other ones that have come before, and you've murdered him? In verse number 54, it says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. They couldn't stand what he was saying because it was true. They couldn't refuse what he was saying. They couldn't, maybe I should say, they couldn't refute what he was saying. Because every bit of it was true. And he was able by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit through conviction on their hearts, was able to bring them to this place where they realized what he was saying. It wasn't something where he's like, oh yeah, that was a nice story. How does that apply to us? They said he is speaking directly to us. He's making too much sense. We have to shut him up. Right? And so they gnashed on him with their teeth, Verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So God parts the heavens whenever this is about to happen. He gives him a sneak peek into glory and he says, just keep going. You're doing well. Just keep following me. Continue trusting in me because you may be seeing me from a distance at the moment, but just a minute you're going to be seeing me up close, right? And verse 56 and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Son of Man was a term that Jesus often used. Okay, It was a messianic term. And whenever he says, I see the Son of Man, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, 
He is proclaiming that Jesus Christ, the one that they slew, is God, that he is equal with God, that he is still alive, that he is in heaven, and they are in trouble. Something else interesting about it is that he says Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. This is the only place you find him standing at the right hand of God. Normally he is seated at the right hand of God. But as Stephen is getting ready to be the first martyr, getting ready to be dispatched into eternity here, Jesus takes note. He rises from his chair to see what's going on. He takes interest in the lives of his saints. Right? So he is standing at the right hand of God. And they couldn't stand to hear all of this because in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears like a bunch of five-year-olds and ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? He was so Christ-like, even the way that he conducted himself and the things that he said, even in his death, were like Christ. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a testimony, right? And so as we look at Stephen's death, the first martyr here, I know we've spent quite a bit of time on his, his sermon and his defense and all these things, but through all of this, he was proclaiming the gospel. He was laying history bare. He was connecting all the dots. He was showing these religious leaders what God was doing, what his plan was, how all of this came together and culminated on Jesus and how they missed it, okay? They didn't want to hear it. As I said, he made too much sense. And they decided that they were going to kill him because it's a lot more convenient to tune him out, to ignore the truth than to accept it, right? For them to accept the truth, for them to say, yes, Stephen, you're right, we messed up, that would be too big of an attack on their pride. That'd be too much for them to swallow. They would have to admit they were wrong. So it would make more sense to them to just kill Stephen. But as we look at his death here, he died with dignity, right? Isn't that a term they use today? He died with dignity because as they were stoning him, he wasn't cursing them. He wasn't shouting at them. He wasn't begging them to stop. He was looking forward to Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith, right? He was looking forward to glory. He was resting in his blessed hope. He knew that Jesus had him. He was reassured of that. And so through it all, even though the stones were bouncing off of him, his eyes were still focused on heaven. He called out to the Lord and said, Lord, receive my spirit. We go back to the cross where Jesus says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And this shows that Jesus is God, that he is equal with God, that this is a testimony of the Trinity, that Jesus is the one to whom he's going to commend his spirit to, just as the Father was the one that Jesus did. You see that? Okay. And so he said, receive my spirit. He knelt down and he said with a loud voice, lay not this sin to their charge. Don't hold this against them. Now, our typical way of thinking is, God, avenge me. See to it that they die miserably. 
I want their lives to be absolutely wretched and miserable. If anything bad can happen to them, let everything bad go wrong. Right? But he says, don't hold this against them. Because he still, with the love of God, is looking to these people as people in need of a Savior, people who need to hear the truth, people who need to accept Christ, people that he wants to see in heaven that he doesn't want to see go to hell, even though they're killing him. And I look at men like Stephen, and I think, man, I have a long way to go, right? And so just a few quick points to, to think on as we, we close this out here. Put yourself back in the day that Stephen lived in, okay? Put yourself as being part of the congregation, as part of the church that was witnessing these things going on. And what would have been the thoughts that would have came into your head? How would you have processed the fact that Stephen had just been killed? To put it in context just a little bit, Peter and some of them had been arrested and an angel got them out of prison. Right? There were threats that were made against them, but the people who were making threats had no power against them. God had overturned their purposes time and again, but now with Stephen, God didn't. Wouldn't you begin to question? God, why didn't you deliver Stephen? Why didn't you deliver him like you did Peter and their other ones? God, why didn't you send an angel to bring him out? Why didn't you stop the lion's jaws, right? Why didn't you keep him from being burned in the fire? Why didn't you deliver him from this situation? Such a wonderful testimony, such a godly man. Why didn't you deliver him? He could have done so much. We needed him down here. And you begin to question and say, how in the world could this be part of God's plan? This seems to be such a waste, right? Wouldn't that be the way that we process things? Because they don't know the rest of the story. They don't know what's going on. Now, in this passage, it tells us that they laid down their, their clothes, their coats, at the feet of a man named Saul. And it introduces Saul into the story because Saul was looking on to all of this. He was listening to all of this. He was seeing all of this happen, and it was causing him to think. It was the very seed that the Lord used to implant within Apostle Paul the understanding of truth. He was seeing Christ in action. He was seeing that this, whatever it was that he was looking at, whatever this Christianity was, it had something that he didn't, that it worked in a way that he wasn't familiar with. He didn't understand what was going on, and I guarantee you he couldn't get it out of his mind he couldn't get it out of his heart. And one of the reasons I believe that he persecuted the church so strongly was because of what a battle this scene gave him. I can imagine at night, whenever he laid down to sleep at night, his mind and his heart was troubled because of the things that he had heard and seen out of Stephen. He couldn't get out of his mind the things that Stephen had said, how much sense that he had made, and it tormented him because he didn't know what to do with this information. 
And so as a result, I believe he wanted to get rid of it. If I can just get rid of it, if I can show myself as being authoritative over it, if I can defeat it, then I can finally move on past it. And he couldn't defeat it. It defeated him. And it finally came to the place where Saul of Tarsus met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. He says, you've been fighting this long enough. You're not going to win this battle. You're not going to overcome me. You're not going to defeat me. And it was at this point in time, it was the blood of Stephen that got to the heart of Apostle Paul. And so we look at what's going on in the world around us. We look at things that we see as being defeats. We look at things that we see as being negative. We think that God has dropped the ball. We think that God has missed out on something, that he has forgotten something, that it was a waste or it was a tragedy. And in reality, it is God working behind the scenes to do something that we can never predict, something that we can never imagine, that he is weaving together a story that exceeds our ability to comprehend. And through, so through the blood of the apostle Steve, or the, the deacon Stephen, the first martyr Stephen, we find what, a, what an effect. It's almost like a rippling effect. You throw a stone into the water and the ripples go out, right? This was just something that God used to get something huge started. So the tragedy in your life might be something that God uses to do something enormous, right? The difficult times, the hard circumstances, the troubles, the trials, all these different things, God can use those things for his purposes and for his good. We start questioning God because of the circumstances, because of the appearance, but God sees it from a different perspective and a different point of view. And so Stephen is a huge example of that, that we can trust God, that God knows what he's doing, even whenever it doesn't make sense, even whenever we can't see it. And so through the, the blood of this martyr Stephen, we have half of our New Testament, right? We have so much as a result. And so he did more in his death than he ever could have done in his life because he submitted to God and he was faithful to the end and he trusted God even in the hardships, even in the difficulties, even whenever the stones were flying and bouncing off his head, he was still trusting God and God honored that and God used it and God did not waste it, but instead he multiplied Stephen's faith and did a great work through it. And it is amazing to me the way that God did all these things. And so if we can learn a few things from Stephen, God's plan is bigger than us. He knows what he's doing. He can bring triumph and tragedy. We just continue to trust him. There's not a single person on this earth that God desires to go to hell. God's not willing that any should perish, not even the ones that mistreat you, not even the ones who blaspheme and speak against God. God still desires to see them saved, right? Whenever we are mistreated, whenever we are abused, whenever we are railed upon, whenever we are mocked, we can still keep our cool, we can still look to our Savior, and we can allow Him to work what only He can do, right? So, with all of that, does anyone have anything to add to or any extra thoughts on this? I know there's plenty more that could be said, but you all don't want to listen to it, right?
<laughs> don't need to get on front. Nothing at all. Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we do thank you for this time, Lord, to, to gather around your word. We thank you for what a, a great example that uh, Stephen is, Lord, and how he used the opportunity, Lord, to uh, preach the word and to proclaim truth rather than trying to to get out of his hardship or to to uh, uh, get delivered from his, his accusers and his attackers, Lord. And Lord, that you blessed that, you rewarded it. And Lord, I just pray that you would Help us, Lord, in our lives to to prioritize the things of God, to prioritize the gospel, and trust you to work in our situations, our circumstances. Trust you in our hardships, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us. Ask you, Lord, just to be with the rest of our service. And thank you for, for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.